Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we're going to continue our series on Who Am I by looking at one of the most well-known personality disorders, sociopathy. We'll explore what it is, where it comes from, and what we can do to interact more skillfully with people who possesses it as a trait, or frankly manage our own tendencies in that direction. To help us do that, I'm joined by Dr. Rick Hansen. How are you doing today? I'm good. This is a really fascinating topic. Yeah, I think this is really rich material because many of these personality tendencies that we've been investigating through the course of this series can be kind of abstract for people. But I think that sociopathy in particular is one that most people have had some kind of a personal relationship with Mm -hmm. at some point in their lives. And also it's very kind of present for us culturally. You see a lot of characters on TV shows and things like that who are sociopaths or even psychopaths. And before we actually get into the meat of the material today, I want to start by letting our listeners know about a new offering that you have, which is the online program called Neurodharma. So for many of us, the person that we really want to be and already are is often kind of covered over with fear and regret and distraction and stress of various kinds. So in this program, you're going to be guiding people through developing seven key qualities for feeling increasingly centered in their fundamental goodness, enoughness, and wakefulness, as you list out. And I know that this material has been very kind of pregnant for you recently, just in your thinking and in your work. So I thought the best way to do this was just give you a few seconds here to talk about it. Oh, that's kind. Thank you. Well, I've been at this a long time, and I've been reflecting a lot about what I think of as the seven essential qualities of awakening, Hmm. both exemplified in those people, the Olympic athletes, let's say, of personal development, mental training, throughout history and at the present time, these seven qualities of being really as far along as anyone could be in terms of human potential, which are also practices. So by leaning in the direction of who we long to be and actually are way deep down, that's a very powerful practice. And so I call it neurodharma because it's at the intersection of current science. It's really at the frontier of current science. That's the neuro side. And the dharma side, yeah, it draws on the Buddhist tradition, but the real deep meaning of it is universal. It means essentially reality and the description of reality found Mm -hmm. in whether it's in science or in folklore or in the spiritual traditions around the world, the intersection of that, which in plain English for me is, wow, where's the coolest stuff to be found? So I'll just name these seven practices and, and mention that this program is a very accessible collection of online offerings with teachings from me, many guided practices is very experiential. And it's what I think of as the deep end of the pool Mm. where the really neat stuff is. So the practices, though, are accessible to everybody. And I'll just kind of list the seven and then we can keep on going. Steadying your mind, warming your heart, resting in fullness, a sense of enoughness already, peace and contentment and love, not agitated, not disturbed. And then moving further into the deep end of the pool with being wholeness being your whole self, accepting yourself fully and kind of opening out into your mind as a whole, which is really quite remarkable. And then fifth, receiving nowness, coming right into the present moment, right at the front edge of now, how to do that. And in each of these, we explore what could be happening in your brain and your body 
when you're rested in these states. So that with that knowledge, you can actually stimulate and strengthen those underlying neural and physiological factors to help yourself stay there. So receiving nowness, and then the last two, opening into allness. What in the world is going on in the brain when you feel like you're one with everything? And last, finding timelessness, which is where we consider what might plausibly be meaningfully, categorically distinct from what's called the natural frame or ordinary conditioned reality, minimally opening to a sense of awe and mystery, perhaps beyond that, a sense of the unconditioned, a field of possibility, always just prior to what appears. So anyway, that's the program. And it's both accessible to everybody because you can engage each one of those practices. We've all had a sense of each one of them as a taste, at least. So you can engage it at that level. And also, if you're into it, you can join me in really going absolutely full throttle toward the highest reaches of human potential. I think that's a really lovely summary. And as a quick note, of course, registration for the program is open. I'll drop a link into the description of this episode. If you would like to follow that, and if you're interested in learning more, we try not to be too promotional on the podcast. We really try to avoid it. We're not currently running ads or anything like that, but it is, I think, on its own merit, a really interesting offering. And I know that it's just been very compelling material for you personally recently. If you are theoretically interested in purchasing a copy of the program, you can enter the code BEINGWELL in all caps at checkout to receive an extra 10% off of the purchase price. That's just for our podcast listeners. Yay, the podcast. Yay, the podcast. So all that said, we tend to use in kind of common language the words sociopath and psychopath a bit interchangeably. Could you offer kind of a working definition of these words here and explain how or if they differ from one another? Right. Well, first, in mainstream psychology, in terms of personality disorders, Mm -hmm. the one that's closest to being a psychopath or a sociopath is called antisocial personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And of the personality disorders, maybe it's the one that's most problematic in terms of how it's described because so-called antisocial behavior is really defined a lot by the society that you're in. Mm. And there are many reasons that would lead a person, let's say, to a life of crime. And framing all that, which is a moral issue, as a psychological personality disorder, as a form of psychopathology, is questionable and complicated in a lot of ways. And so people have thought and written about this and so on. Sociopathy is a fairly common term in psychology, and we'll get into what it describes. Psychopaths is sort of looser and fuzzier. It's a little bit like insane. Insane is not a technical term in psychology. Mm -hmm. For example, psychotic process, a psychotic episode, delusions of grandeur, terminology like that is used. I think that makes a ton of sense, and it's actually useful to know that the term sociopath or psychopath They're not, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that neither of them are actually formally defined. They're both kind of lumped into or understood as a kind of antisocial personality disorder. If you look into the kind of APAs defining of various terms, they don't actually offer one for sociopath or psychopath, I believe. I know, it's kind of interesting. Like, why isn't there a sociopathic personality disorder? Because sociopathy, which we'll, we'll get into, is pretty readily defined. Mm -hmm. psychopathy, as it were, 
is to me at least fuzzier. I'm sure mm-hmm. there are people who have really taken a crack at it. I'll, I'll just give you my own and this is how I'm going to use the words. So when I think of a psychopath, I think of someone who's a serial killer, some of the extreme examples, people, I think Jeffrey Dahmer, who would kill people and then cut up their bodies and keep them in his freezer things like that, or bury them in the basement. We should probably put a trigger warning really quick on this episode because we might be delving into some pretty intense stuff here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, And when I think of psychopaths, the extreme version of that, you know, hospitals for the criminally insane. And there's an element there of malevolence and intense sense of reward. I think a sociopathy a lot as more like an enabling condition rather than something that itself is necessarily rewarding, but psychopathy rewarding. So for this episode, I'm personally going to focus on sociopathy, Mm -hmm. which I find to be really quite common. Many of us have little pockets of sociopathy that we can stumble into inside ourselves under certain conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And very few of us are going to have to deal with a malevolent serial killer who's criminally insane. Yeah, I think that that's a great framing for this episode as a whole. To give a little bit of kind of statistical information here, the APA estimates that roughly 3% of the population has what's referred to as an antisocial personality disorder. One in 30? Wow. Yeah, about 3% of the population has this. But here's the thing. It's exactly what you were saying about before, which is these things exist on a spectrum. Yeah. It's very common to think of most things as being either you have them or you don't. Yeah. But for a psychological condition, it's much fuzzier around how bad do you have to be to be a defined antisocial personality disorder sociopath or whatever it might be. So that was the number that I kept on running into when I was doing some research online. It could or could not be particularly useful. But what I would say is that once we start talking about these disorders at kind of the 5 or 10% level, as we have in previous episodes, I think that you could easily estimate that significantly more than 3% of the population probably possesses them, at least at some level. Yeah, let's start talking about some of the attributes. And I want to tell you a little story here. So I was giving an IQ test, the uh, children's IQ test, children and adolescents, maybe 20 years ago. And the test has been revised since, so I can reveal the question that was asked. And so this literally is the first question in a subtest called comprehension, which is about practical knowledge and some understanding of social norms. So I had this kid in my office, probably about 15, bright guy. And I asked him the first question on this particular subtest. So what should you do if you see thick smoke pouring out of a window in your neighbor's home? Now, The correct two-point answer is to both take some immediate action to help the people and call the fire department. That's what a person should do. This kid heard the question. He and I were cordial. He looked at me and said, well, it kind of depends. Do I like them? (laughs) Boom, right there. And so this gets to one of the first features I want to talk about, moral reasoning. In his calculation, there was no general principle that was operative. There was no principled stance of benevolence. It was just simply like, what's in it for me? Do I like him? Is it transactional? Am I going to get caught, for example? 
rather than some more sophisticated form of moral reasoning that's principled and involves a willingness to surrender your own immediate self-interest sometimes for the sake of the greater good. Like there's no notion of that. There's no greater good. There's a loyalty to. In sociopathy, there's an emphasis on immediate self-interest and what can I get away with? One thing I do want to make clear though is that sometimes we find ourselves in situations where, in my own view at least, it's okay to go feral and to realize in this particular situation, you don't owe the other person anything. Maybe they're robbing you at gunpoint. Do you actually owe them the truth? Or is the fact that they're robbing you at gunpoint mean that all bets are off and you're allowed to do whatever you need to do to get away from the situation with your life intact. Yeah, to kind of touch on that for a second, I this is maybe wandering into a different podcast episode, but yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't think that effective moral reasoning is about taking a quote-unquote upstanding action at all intersections. Yeah. It's about good reasoning. It yeah. would not be reasonable to behave politely when somebody is robbing you at gunpoint, to use your example. I I would actually view that as a deficiency of moral reasoning if you were a person who did that, even when you were being A failure of duty to yourself. Literally, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, So that's a good caveat to give here that it's not that if you don't behave with the greater good in mind at every moment of your life, you must be a sociopath. Just because you're not always nice doesn't mean you're a sociopath. Yeah, and that's a good kind of caveat to give here for probably the conversation as a whole. To give a couple other traits, so that kind of moral reasoning is absolutely one Mm -hmm. of the defining traits or a lack of moral reasoning. Another one that's very classic is just empathy or lack thereof. The ability to relate effectively to the emotional lives or internal lives of other people. Some of the other ones that are classically given are things like a lack of guilt or remorse for bad behavior, lack of deep emotional attachments, or particularly lack of emotional attachments to more than a pretty select group of people. Narcissism is one that often appears with sociopathy. Things like dishonesty and kind of superficial levels of manipulative charm, and really just kind of manipulative behavior in general is sort of a classic association that comes along with sociopathy. So. Those are some of the general characteristics that we're talking about here that you might relate to yourself or you might relate to seeing people like this kind of around you in the world. So to simplify all of this and maybe set the stage for what we talk about in a moment, there's a meaningful percentage of people walking around us all the time, it's actually pretty common, who demonstrate high levels of traits like manipulativeness, a lack of remorse for their behavior, dishonesty, the kind of casual exploitation of sex and physicality, self-centeredness, and unwillingness to engage the emotional lives of other people, and so on. That is just the world in which we find ourselves. So with that as a little bit of context, what would you say that sociopathy at the, say, 5 to 15% level looks like practically. Maybe the person isn't a full-on sociopath, but they've definitely got some of these traits running around their system. Well, it's a great question. One way I'm going to try to get at it here is to think about the sociopathic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. My way of talking about antisocial personality disorder is one in which the whole package is present. So... The milder version of this, which we could think of as 
along the lines of a so-called shadow syndrome. Like what is mild, mild, mild OCD look like or mild, mild, mild depression look like? What is mild, mild, mild sociopathy looks like? I think it looks like having one or two of the attributes of the package of sociopathy, but not the whole package. Mm-hmm. So I want to start out by just naming two attributes to look at and then see what you think about this for us. First attribute is very concrete and self-interested moral reasoning. Bottom line, deep down, what can I get away with? What's in it for me? That would be one attribute of the whole sociopathic package that a person might relate to without having the other features of the package. A second dimension is the lack of compassion. It's not so much that sociopathic types lack empathy because they can actually understand others. They can be insightful into what others are feeling. They just don't care. (laughs) They have empathy, but not compassion. So that would be a second attribute that a person could look at. Hmm, How much compassion do I have, especially for people who are not like me? When you're more on the sociopathic, and this is really an interesting point too, it's really hard to treat because you're fine with being sociopathic when you're sociopathic. Like people don't like being anxious or depressed, but if you're like, (laughs) there's so much about this is kind of funny. I I knew a guy who said, yeah, everybody used to think I had an anger problem and I finally realized I don't have an anger problem. They have a problem with my anger. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It points to why sociopathy can be really challenging for people to interact with because to your point, somebody who's a sociopath doesn't necessarily think that they're doing something wrong. These are just how they view the world in a really kind of black and white sort of way. And maybe even for them, it's sort of obvious that it's everyone else who's the idiot. You know, it's not their problem necessarily. That's actually a really good way to do it because they think of the world as winners and losers, Mm -hmm. wise guys and suckers. Mm -hmm. And if someone's a sucker, that's on them and they don't want to be a sucker. To give a little bit of additional context here, where does this come from? Mm. Is there a genetic component or is this purely about somebody's nurturance when they were younger. I have a friend who's a neurologist and he has a theory that has some plausibility to it in that as our ancestors lived and survived and evolved mainly inside small bands, it would not be good to have sociopathy directed at others of the band because that would harm the band. It would suppress genes being passed down. There are issues with that. But to have a little bit of sociopathy applied inside the band, just enough to, for example, have more babies with your genes, let's say, if you're male. But also, when you have to deal with other bands, it's kind of handy to have a few sociopaths in your tribe who can just seriously whoop on those other bands and just scare the heck out of them. And you can prevail and get resources and pass on more genes that pass on genes. It's an interesting notion, isn't it? This idea that Sociopathy is actually adaptive in group life, especially if it's applied against competitive groups, them rather than us. So there I'm speaking to a potential genetic basis for sociopathy that actually had some adaptive advantages as our ancestors were evolving. And so that genetically rooted tendency is present in the distribution of human beings in some people more than others. Now. Having said all that, it's really important to be clear that there's no double-blind longitudinal study that's possible on this topic. You can't rerun evolution. 
We need to be careful about the stories we tell. And to really emphasize here, I think, the ways in which society and social structures shape people sometimes into being sociopathic. And sometimes it can seem to you, depending on where you grow up, that the only way to survive is through some sociopathy. And maybe that's true in some conditions. So I just want to acknowledge all that. The other side of it, classically, there is a high correlation between people who become career criminals and attention deficit disorder or Mm. hyperactivity. Let's call it the genetically rooted temperament of impulsivity, stimulation seeking, which often travels or is correlated with aggressiveness. So you can just think about how that package in, let's say, males, most criminals are male, particularly violent criminals. You see that package in a kid who's a first grader. And then where does it go from there? Mm -hmm. Is it channeled? To paraphrase Margaret Mead, I love this line of hers that says, the test of a civilization is how well it socializes warrior males. Hmm. A lot of interesting implications from that. So does that kid, let's say in first grade, grow up to become a police officer or goes into the military and is a warrior to protect in in an honorable kind of way? Or does that person go down the path of becoming a career criminal? Environments can really shape the direction we go in, but there certainly is a correlation between those temperamental tendencies of impulsivity, hyperactivity, stimulation-seeking, and aggressiveness, and becoming a career criminal. Another element is whether someone was abused, particularly physically, a lot as a kid. Mm -hmm. Were you hit a lot as a kid? You know, if you're hit a lot as a kid, it's just kind of natural to, you know, become a hitter yourself. So that's another dimension in terms of the nurture side of it, if you will. If there's some nature component in terms of the ways in which sociopathy is a human temperament distributed in the population, on top of that then lands nurture, the ways in which you were raised, including the moral basis of the upbringing you had. To give a little bit of interesting information on kind of both sides of the nature-nurture debate here, there is some evidence from research that the brains of people with intense sociopathic tendencies are meaningfully different from the brains of people who do not have these tendencies, particularly in brain functioning and the areas of the brain that tend to relate to things like empathic understanding and those kinds of softer emotions. So there is some evidence there that there's definitely a genetic basis. At the same time, there's some really interesting research on sociopathy and on the influence of early life experiences on the development of these sorts of behaviors. And one thing that's really cool to know is that there actually is a positive correlation between early negative life events between the ages of zero and four and the kind of emotional aspects Mm. of sociopathy. But there are more moderate correlations between sociopathy from late childhood to early adolescence. And they're even lower from early or mid-adolescence to adulthood. Mm. So to kind of put that into common English, the earlier that something bad happens to you, the more influential it is on the development of the brain and therefore on the likelihood of developing kind of a more sociopathic tendency. So I thought that that was really interesting, that it's not just about kind of having a rough childhood. It's also about when do those experiences happen to you 
And do they really tend to happen more truly early on in that development Mm -hmm. of the brain? Another kind of cool thing, which is maybe gets to something that we're going to touch on in a second here, which is about what do you do about all of this? Yeah. There are some really interesting twin studies and some really interesting studies on children who were raised with a biological primary caregiver, typically a mother, who was really problematic, had a very heavy genetic influence of sociopathic tendencies, and also was very neglectful or even abusive for a young child. And then this child was taken out of that environment and placed with an adoptive parent, typically, again, an adoptive mother. What happened here was that these tendencies towards sociopathic behavior became highly inhibited in the infant. This is before 18 months. So this is, you know, you're really a pupa at that stage. You're not doing a lot of high-level reasoning. You can't act. They were really inhibited by high levels of positive reinforcement by the adopted mother. Mm. So again, to really simplify here, the answer in this case really was love and affection directed toward the child. And that that was the thing that really steered the ship back toward a more positive outcome. That's fascinating material for us. If I could, I want to talk a bit about what to do when you realize that you're in a relationship of some kind with someone who's sociopathic. The first distinction I want to make is this whole idea, going back to this notion of tribes, that what do you do when you get to know someone in your team, let's say at work, and this is a person who's nice, people at work, picks up the tab sometimes when you go out to lunch, you know, is a decent person. While on the other hand, you can really see that this is a person who's completely willing to break all the rules, to lie, to cheat, etc., to beat the other teams out there in the world or the world in general. And it can be easy sometimes to kind of go along with it because maybe there's some advantage to being on a team with someone who's willing to be pretty sociopathic and aggressive against the rest of humanity. On the other hand, you have to realize there before the grace of God go I. In other words, if this person has a completely different set of rules for us and for them, what happens when you're suddenly a them Mm. to that person? And you have to realize it could actually be risky and unstable for you. If they could do it, to them, well, maybe they could do it to you. So that's one thing to think about. Second thing is to think about the ways in which often people who are sociopathic are also magnetic, charming, and sexy. And there could be ways in which, particularly if you grew up with a parent who had that, those qualities themselves, like a charming ne'er-do-well who was really slippery around the truth, and keeping agreements and appropriate conduct, et cetera, et cetera. If that was, let's say, your dad, there might be some ways in which you're kind of drawn to that certain person as a partner, as a male partner, let's say. And so it's really useful to be a little bit aware of what draws you to that kind of person. And also maybe as well, what makes you willing to be intimidated by them. And let them get away with things. Because here too, a sociopathic person, when they're doing their sociopathic bit, it's a dominance move. Mm. They're exploitive. They're powerful. They're they're taking, let's say. They're doing too. And so it can be scary 
to speak up to or push against a sociopath. And to be clear here, sometimes the smartest move is when you start to realize you're dealing with someone of a certain kind. People make a loose distinction between a kind of opportunistic sociopathy and a motivated malevolence. So if you're with someone and you realize that if they've been drinking and their impulse control is really disappearing and they get angry, they could just go to places that are well, a little scary. But if they're not drinking and they're not angry, they're more well-regulated. That's distinct from a person when you start to realize, maybe you see that glint in their eye, they're a snake. They really are getting off on this and they're looking for ways to exploit and hurt others because that's rewarding to them. Mm. It's a real difference. So I want to just kind of call out that difference. Sure, yeah. And I also want to call out that sometimes you're outnumbered, you're outgunned. The best move for you is to smile politely and then get the hell out of there, right? Out of the relationship, out of their apartment, out of the, you know, the company, the neighborhood. Sometimes you just the smartest move is to get away. But to really also simultaneously look at any ways in which you tend to feel intimidated or small and helpless around others who are powerful in sociopathic kinds of ways and to help yourself and to to claim power from the inside out or to reach out to allies who can help you think clearly about what to do with a sociopathic boss, partner, boyfriend, whatnot, and feel more empowered to deal with them. Another thing is to start to recognize when you're with someone who casually it's others. Drawing on the Martin Buber three-part model of relationships as I-thou or I-it or it-it, I think it's really useful to recognize when you feel like you're an it to their I. They could be charming. They could be dismissive. However they are, you really register, wow, you don't really care about me, actually. And you're not governed by rules that constrain your self-interest. That's what's really going on here. And to recognize that. And I think that my own experience has been, if the relationship is important enough to you to surface that, like, hey, I just suddenly felt like I didn't matter to you and you didn't care and you were just going to take what you wanted. What's going on here? Is that what's really going on? And then back and forth, back and forth, sometimes you can work out something that makes you feel, okay, I can trust this person still in the future. Other times, it's not even worth that conversation. You just realize, whoa, you're prepared to go there. You don't really care. And I think it's important to recognize that and to, if need be, shift your view of those other people and see clearly that, you know, you are in it to them. And it's important to find others who, for whom you will be a thou rather than an it. I've had re- relationships with people. I've been friends with people. I've had bosses. I've had colleagues. I've had, you know, whatever. That, you know, 5% sociopaths. Mm-hmm. They're not brutal, but they're 5% sociopaths. And honestly, you kind of like them. You know, they're safe because you, you put them in the box that prevents you from being harmed by them. Mm. You, they're your buddy, they're your friend. You're not going to You're not going to ask them to marry your sister, mm-hmm. but they're not going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. And so, what are the things that we can do inside of our relationships with that, with that person, or with those kinds of people, in order to make them as 
effective and positive as possible. Or even let's say you have a friend that you care about and they have sociopathy at the 2%, 5%, 10% level and you want to be as helpful as possible to them in you know, battling their demons and emerging from that. What are some of the things you can do to do that? Well, one thing is to be completely trustworthy yourself. Mm. And more generally to help the person realize that the war is over. You don't need to cheat to get ahead anymore. You don't need to steal or be incredibly possessive. You don't. You're in a different situation now. You're out of that neighborhood. You're out of that family. You're out of that orphanage, that school. Really, you're in a different world now. You don't need to do that. I think that's one thing. I think another thing is to appeal. And there are a lot of well-regulated sociopaths around who have made the calculation based on raw self-interest that it's better to not break the law because the odds are pretty good that you'll be caught. Mm -hmm. And so with someone who maybe you're trying to help them realize they just don't need to go to that concrete sort of primitive in some ways moral reasoning is to tap into it and use it in effect against them or use it for the sake of the greater good by helping them realize that their best play, their most self-interested play is to learn how to be nice to other people and keep their agreements and develop their compassion because that's going to be the winning move for them over the long haul. So you're kind of appealing to a simplistic, very concrete form of moral reasoning, but you're using that for the, in the service of something bigger. Great. So to flip the mirror around for a moment onto ourselves, just as other people, friends, colleagues, and so on, can have sociopathy at the 5% or the 10%, so can we. And sometimes you just have a moment in your life where you take a look in the mirror and you go, wow, this kind of moral reasoning is a bit of an issue for me, or this kind of empathy is a bit of an issue for me, or wow, I've just kind of blown up a lot of, in general, really positive interpersonal relationships with people because I struggled with this dimension of my life. What are some of the things that a person can do to work with that tendency inside of themselves? Well, great question, really. And I want to speak to two things and then see if they make sense and maybe we'll add more. The first is to ask yourself, are there situations in which something happens, maybe a switch flips or a switch that normally is in the correct position gets turned off and you just go to a really bad place. Mm -hmm. And there I'm thinking about this fantastic movie I just saw recently called The Mustang, which is more or less about a program in a prison system in, in America that uses working with wild horses as a process of rehabilitation for violent career criminals. And the movie follows a key person in it. And the haunting scene I want to describe here is in which a psychologist person is running an anger management group and asks, they're all men, asks all these various men around the circle, how much time now have they been in prison? 12 years, 14 days, you know, and so all the rest of that sort of thing. And then the next time they go around the circle, the question is, how long did it take between the impulse to do your crime and the crime itself? 
Mm-hmm. How long? And you can see these people go a split second or four seconds. Or one guy stares off into space and then he looks back and he says, 22 seconds. Mm. So there was this impulse to do something that was intensely rewarding or motivating in that moment. But the duration of the reward is seconds. And the cost of it is years of your life. Maybe you're the rest of your life altogether. Maybe your life gets taken from you in terms of capital punishment. And so my point is, sociopathy takes the form of a sociopathic eruption. And then the question becomes, how can I make sure I'm not there when they're erupting on me? And then to your question here, Forrest, how can I be careful about when I erupt in that way? That's one way to regulate yourself, to think Mm. through, okay, what are the conditions under which I lose it? Have I been drinking? Is it at the end of the day? Is it when, in my own mind, I have felt wronged by a variety of people and I finally blow up at a certain situation that's the last straw? So that would be one way to look at it. What are the situations in which you erupt and try to stay away from them? Second thing is to be aware of tendencies in your mind to cast certain kinds of people or groups of people just out of your heart. They don't matter. And to turn them into it's that you're just indifferent to. Indifference. When does indifference arise that in which you are not bothered that they're hurt by your actions? Because they don't matter. They're not like me. They're not my tribe. They're not my type. They're just fill in the blank. What kind of tendency do you have along those lines? And then Increasingly, can you look for ways to imagine how those others are like me Mm. in one way or another? Mm -hmm. So you expand the circle of us as we've talked about. So those would be two ways in to dealing with, you know, the sociopathic corners inside your own mind. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And it's telling to me that the first thing that you said there was fundamentally about impulse control. Yeah, And that's been kind of a pet topic of mine throughout these podcasts that we've been doing. What happens between the stimulus and the response? Yeah, Because I think that that's really fundamentally where we have the space to explore agency inside of our own lives. And the space to really impact the way that our life looks in the next day and month and year, as you're saying here in some cases. And honestly, part of the sociopathic tendency might be a little bit around having a tougher time with that kind of impulse control or not understanding that you're supposed to be exercising impulse control is maybe even a better way to put it. And so the more metacognitive that we can become, the more aware that we can become about the inner workings of our own minds, I think the more ability that we have to influence that space in between when you we get stimulated by something and what our response to it is. So. I would certainly co-sign what you're saying there. Yeah. Here's a third one. Mm -hmm. Be really aware of those justifications arising in the mind that make you think in the moment at least, it's okay to break the rules or it's okay to go outside the lines in your interaction with another person. Like, how are you justified, right? That's another thing to really be careful about and to be aware of when it's arising. So because they did you dirt, you're therefore justified to X. Are you really? And in the long run, will it serve you better to stay within the line, stay within your code, stay within your integrity system? I talk about this as unilateral virtue. Will it be better for you to do that and to develop that over time? 
Great. I'm sure that we could spend a lot more time here and explore this topic in even greater detail than we have so far. It's a very big one, and it's one that impacts a lot of us inside of our day-to-day lives. But this seems like as good a spot as any to kind of bring it to a close for at least today. So today we talked about sociopathy and particularly sociopathic tendencies at what I would describe as the 1% to 10% level, or as you described as the shadow of sociopathy that can exist inside of our lives. We started by distinguishing between psychopathy and sociopathy and describing some of the ways in which these terms have always been a bit difficult to define and are not even really defined themselves inside of kind of the most formal psychological lexicon that exists. So when we're talking about these terms, there's going to be a certain amount of inherent fuzziness to them that can often make things a little bit challenging to talk about. We then went into some of the key traits of the sociopath and then had a bit of a conversation around how does sociopathy develop? Is it more nature or is it more nurture? The answer that we came to on our own was it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, and that seems to be generally pretty supported in the literature. Although, of course, as with all of these topics, there is a certain amount of question there that remains. We then went into some ways that we can manage people who might have sociopathic tendencies inside of our lives. Your sort of leading recommendation was establishing as much space as reasonably possible between yourself and that person. Mine leaned on shrinking the size of your relationship to a comfortable size giving the example where I've certainly had some friends who had some tendencies in that direction, but if I knew exactly how far I could trust them and exactly how far my relationship with them could comfortably go, I always felt secure inside of it. We then concluded by turning the lens onto ourselves and asking, wow, what can we do if we feel like sociopathy of one kind or another might be a problem inside of our own psyche? Uh, And you gave some great advice there and what we can do to investigate it, particularly focusing on the subjects of impulse control and then being aware of how we can it others or cast them out easily from our social spheres and the ways in which our brain maybe works a little bit differently when we're talking about things related to our tribe versus things related to other people's tribes. So that's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would leave a rating, review, subscribe to it through the platform of our choice. It really does authentically help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening. 